He saw her from across the room. A teenage wisp in red glitter jeans with swirls of blonde hair. She was swaying to the bass line of some forgettable disco track. A throwaway song for getting the crowd restless before dropping a favorite like the Time Warp. It was a typical night at the Sugar Shack, a teen club in 1970s Los Angeles, and Kim Fowley, the middle-aged music man who was never too old for teen nightlife, was on the prowl. He was cruising for his jailbait, Bridget Bardot, the final addition to his all-girl hard rock band. When he saw her there, skin-tight top and blue eyes that had seemed well beyond their 15 years, he knew he had something. He pushed through the crowd to meet her. I've seen you around. You come here a lot, don't you? What? I said I've seen you around. I like your look, the makeup, the platinum hair. Very sexy. Do you play an instrument? No. Ever want to? How about bass? Ever think about playing bass? I already said I don't play an instrument. I want to give you a chance to be part of rock and roll history. Have you ever heard of the Runaways? Fuck off, creep. I just want to dance. Marie Curie recognized the Frankenstein look-alike in a tangerine suit, and rumor and instinct told her to avoid him. People said the record producer understood more about getting his name out than making hits, and he had a reputation for pressuring young girls into sex. Every rock and roll teen in LA knew something of the Runaways, but with Fowley attached to them and their ever-rotating lineup, the band already sounded like a runaway train. Not anything Marie wanted to be part of. She forgot the interaction as quickly as it happened. That is, until later that night. You'll never believe what happened to me? Marie's identical twin sister, Cherie, came bursting into the room. Kim Fowley asked me to audition for the Runaways. In the annals of music history, the Runaways are best remembered as the moment when women really broke into rock music. Sure, there have been all-girl rock bands like the Shangri-Las and Fanny, but these bands were few, far between, and shy about their surrender to the oversexed, no-holds-barred bravado of rock mythology. The Runaways were that moment when women, teen women no less, went all in. Their songs weren't about swooning over crushes, they were about jerking off to crushes, taking drugs, outrunning cops. The Runaways wore leather and lingerie on stage and they pissed on the equipment of bands who disrespected them. Pat Smear of the Germs said the Runaways did for LA what the Ramones did for New York. Music journalist John Savage points to a Runaways show as a defining moment in British punk history. But this isn't just the story of the trials and tribulations of an influential all-female band. It's the story of women who said yes and women who said no. It's about women who had to negotiate everything from their femininity to their sexualities, to contracts, drunk come-ons, class differences, and touring in a wood panel station wagon with a roadie high on uppers. These are women who staked their claim in history at a time when very few options were presented in binaries like yes and no. Kim Fowley is one of the best-known Spengalis in rock history, yet despite raping a band member, he's still credited for progressing women's position in rock music. But could a band like The Runaways have happened without him? Where did the women who turned down The Runaways end up? I'm Miko Caporell, and you're listening to Bad Reputation, a women's rock history podcast. In this first season, you'll hear the story of The Runaway Runaways. Okay, so spoiler alert, it's pretty likely that that exchange between Kim Fowley and Marie Curie never happened. We'll get to that later. 
That story is just one of many that makes up Runaway's lore. Like many people in Hollywood, Kim Fowley believed stars weren't born, they were made. So he encouraged all his bands to sell themselves through stories they made up. The Runaways were no exception. They were also no exception to the sex, drugs, rock and roll lifestyle. Between all the self-mythology and substances, the Runaways' history hasn't always been totally clear, even to the band itself. Here's what we can say for sure. The Runaways are what happened when a middle-aged man's ambitions collided with a handful of teenage girls. Not only does the band define a girls-to-the-front moment in rock history, but they also mark Los Angeles' transition from the glam capital of the United States to the punk beacon of the West Coast. Because here's what you might not know. Hollywood glamour isn't just about the golden era of motion pictures. It's about glam rock. The Runaways formed in 1975. But their story really begins in the early 70s, when a young Mercury Records intern named Rodney Bingenheimer introduced a then-unknown David Bowie to Los Angeles. At this time, Bowie was still sporting long hair and playing acoustic guitar. Nixon was in office, and all the counterculture men had beards. Kind of dress? Americans weren't sure about this Bowie guy. Bingenheimer, on the other hand, was confident Bowie had something. Just a year later, Bingenheimer went to the UK, where Bowie introduced him to the British nightclub scene. He felt electrified by the sounds of bands like T-Rex and Slade, and the makeup, high drama and glittering. 60 psych rock had collided with art rock, or maybe it was reacting to it. Whatever was happening, it put Bingenheimer on cloud nine. Bowie encouraged him to open up something like it in LA, so in 1972, he returned to the States and started the E-Club on the Sunset Strip. And the E-Club became the short-lived, but now legendary, Rodney's English Disco. Rodney's was the stick-on-jewel at the center of the plastic tiara that was the Sunset Strip. The bar's name was scrawled across its front in sparkling old English letters. Inside, it was outfitted with cheap wood paneling and checkered tablecloths. Just imagine a shitty Italian restaurant hiding in a suburban 70s basement. That was Rodney's aesthetic. It catered to a crowd that didn't want to compete with decor. People in overdone makeup, platform shoes, feather boas, sequins. There were mirrors all over the club, so self-described glitter babies could gaze at their reflections while dancing. Because of Bingenheimer's music connections, his club proved an essential part in helping Bowie find his American audience when he became Ziggy Stardust. And that helped cement Rodney's as a premier destination for rock royalty. So much so that there was a small VIP table crammed beside the dance floor where bands like Led Zeppelin, Alice Cooper, and the Stooges would be roped off. An almost famous Cameron Crowe's early aughts homage to 1970s rock culture, one of the groupies says, It's all happening! It's all happening! It's all happening! That line was inspired by the music column called it's All Happening, that Rodney Bingenheimer wrote for Go Magazine. Crow couldn't make a movie about 70s rock and not reference Rodney's, because literally every groupie in L.A. spent time there. Besides groupies, women didn't have much visibility in rock at that moment. Janis Joplin was a relic of heroin and hippies in Laurel Canyon. And Rodney's was about quaaludes and drag queens in Hollywood. 
A lot of women went to the club because they wanted to be part of the music, and groupie was a role available to them. But Rodney's was also an emotionally safe place for female misfits. Women who liked sex a little too much or liked having it with other women. Women who didn't want to behave like women at all. Rodney's was a place where the boundaries of sexuality and gender could blur and dissolve. Here's how Runaway's co-founder, Carrie Crumb, once described it. There were guys running around like disc jockey Chucky Star. Despite the hormones everywhere, they were sexually non-threatening because they were gay. It sent a message that it was okay to be gay or bi. Rodney's was gay and bi. Smattering of creepy swinger couples, groupies, and glitter babies, musicians, and sexual predators. There were people jumping off on whatever, but it was also extremely sleazy. Like really jaded 15-year-olds and mother-daughter group teams. The sleaze didn't stop Bingenheimer from earning a reputation as an L.A. tastemaker. He was so renowned for his cultural influence, he was dubbed the mayor of Sunset Strip, a title Kim Fowley claims was his, but that he bestowed on Bingenheimer. To some extent, it was possible. The two were close friends, and Fowley was also quite the man about town. But it's pretty doubtful. Bingenheimer says the name was given to him by actor Sal Minio, and this is generally accepted as the origin story. You can see that there's often Fowley's word, and then there's everyone else's. So let's pause for a second so I can give you everything you need to know about this man. First, the guy grew up listening to doo-wop and R&B. Like most 1950s teens who had problems with authority, he was hooked on rock and roll. He'd tell anyone who would listen that he had dreams of being a quote-unquote white Negro. To put it mildly, he had a knack for identifying other people's cool and then exploiting it for himself. The second thing you should know is he had a very particular approach to making records. In 1960, a 20-year-old Fowley lived in a gas station beside American Recording Studio. He wanted to work in the music biz, and this was his attempt to stay close to the action. One day, he let some rando use the gas station's bathroom. Except this rando turned out to be Dallas Frazier, a fairly successful country musician. And Frazier gave Fowley rights to one of his unsuccessful B-sides to say, Hey dude, thanks for the toilet. Quickly, Fowley scrambled together some studio musicians and recorded it on the cheap next door. By some fluke, that song, Alley Oop, became a billboard number one. From then on, Fowley was always trying to repeat that success. He'd record just about anything if he could do it fast and thrifty. So anytime someone talks about Fowley as a hitmaker, there's at least a kernel of truth to that. After all, in his lifetime, he worked with everyone from Helen Reddy to Kiss. But it's also important to realize that Fowley had a lot of hits because he'd churn out a high volume of music, any kind of music, on a low budget hoping something would take off. For every chart topper Fowley had, there were dozens, literally dozens of songs he produced that barely left the studio. Now, the last thing you should know is that after nearly a decade and a half in the music business, Fowley was pretty hellbent on forming a young, all-female band. There's a lot of speculation about why, though. Before The Runaways, he had put together The Hollywood Stars, an L.A. imitation of the proto-punk glam band The New York Dolls. Of course, The Hollywood Stars couldn't even finish a record before the project fell apart. So some say Fowley thought male rockers had too much attitude. They liked to give orders more than take them, and Fowley needed a group who knew their place. 
which is to say, Fowley wanted to work with ladies because he thought women, especially young women, would be easier to control. Fowley said differently. As he described it, a hard rock girl band was the next phase of some inevitable music evolution. You would go from Elvis Presley doing female moves with his hips with the striptease pit-type drummer, all the way to the high voice of Robert Plant, into the New York Dolls, into David Bowie, into all the glitter and glam guys, and all of a sudden, you turn the page and there's a woman with a vagina and a guitar looking you right in the eye. It was inevitable that, evolution-wise, women would pick up the obnoxious rock and roll pitchfork and ram it up the ass of the world. The summer of 1974, Fowley took out an ad for an all-girl band in Who Put the Bomb, a small L.A. music magazine. He took a picture of the Beatles and replaced their faces with women such as Bridget Bardot and Susie Quattro, then surrounded them with lots of stars and dollar signs. The ad reads, Wanted four girls. Job? To play pop music. Purpose? To find the female Beatles, Stones, Who, Shangri-Las of the 70s. We're looking for girls who will take up where Susie Quattro and Fanny leave off. The kind of girls who always dreamed they were in a Phil Spector group. Girls with the desire and ability to carve out a place for women in 70s rock as significant as that held in the 60s. Girls who can bring hysteria, magic, beauty, and teen authority to the stage. Girls with youth, energy, dedication, wildness, discipline, dedication, and style. Maybe enough women weren't up to the tasks of a man who wanted so much dedication, he listed it twice. Maybe there just weren't enough women playing rock instruments yet. Or maybe it was off-putting that someone who described himself as a maker of stars was running an ad with a sex icon's head on Ringo Starr's body. Whatever the reasons, no one responded. But Fowley didn't abandon the idea. Bingenheimer's club gave him endless access to young women, so when Carrie Crome started hanging around Rodney's, Bingenheimer was ready to connect them. Carrie was one of Rodney's youngest regulars. At 12, she'd steal rock magazines from a nearby liquor store to pour over pictures of the club. As a lifelong tomboy, Rodney's held the promise of androgyny and adventure. Her mother would work nights as a club dancer, so Carrie started sneaking out and hitchhiking to Hollywood. All her thoughts were consumed by rock and roll, and she became a teen staple of the Sunset Strip. Here's how fast Freddie Patterson, editor of the California music magazine Backdoor Man, described her. Carrie Crome is an alcoholic Emily Dickinson inspired by Lou Reed and Chuck Berry on a suburban gutter bubblegum level. When she wasn't club hopping, though, Carrie would lose herself in writing and drawing, creating a parallel life for herself where she wasn't a latchkey kid from a low-income family. She'd often fantasize about being a musician and draw her perfect band, one where she was the drummer. Of course, her family said drums were unladylike, so for a long time, secret lyrics were the closest she came to making music. Then, in 1975, at a birthday party for Alice Cooper of all places, she thought she was getting a chance at something more. The beautiful boyish Carrie was just 13 when she celebrated another year of the godfather of shock rock at the Hollywood Palladium. Bingenheimer introduced her to Fowley as a songwriter, and immediately, Fowley saw an opportunity. 
After the party, he began calling her at home, long rambling phone calls that lasted well into the night, picking her brain about what teens were into. Carrie was used to being written off as weird, so she liked the attention. Fowley didn't talk down to her, and he encouraged her to keep doing things other adults chided her for. Things like wearing crop tops and kissing girls. On August 1st, 1975, he signed Carrie to a publishing deal so she'd write songs for him. It was her 14th birthday. To this day, Carrie maintains that starting The Runaways was her idea. In fact, some of the band's earliest press says she told Fowley, girls as young as her were writing her kind of songs? Why couldn't girls as young as her play them, too? And Fowley, having found Carrie so easily, figured players would quickly follow. But, as we've already seen, he didn't find Carrie so easily. And we know he was trying to put together a project like The Runaways a full year before Carrie entered the picture. As a master of spin, Fowley would have known it was good press to project The Runaways as young, wild women running their own show. But it's also very likely Fowley never shared his previous ambitions with Carrie. And it's equally possible that Carrie brought this idea to Fowley totally unprovoked. Regardless of whose idea the Runaways were, it's undeniable that Carrie was an essential part in making them happen. Not only was she their lyricist, but she also found the first piece of the Runaways puzzle, on a bus no less. There was this awkward girl hugging a guitar case. Her frosted hair was cut into the same bouncing almost mullet as Susie Quattro, and the pair couldn't stop staring at one another. Later, they ran into each other at his club. Possibly Rodney's English disco, possibly the Starwood. Depends on who you ask. At some club, a mutual friend finally introduced them, and the girl, Joan Jett, began writing Carrie letters. Of course, she wasn't Joan Jett yet. She was still Joan Larkin, a painfully shy girl born in a suburb of Philadelphia. Her parents raised her to believe she could do anything, so she always let herself dream big. Astronaut, archaeologist, actor. That all changed when she heard Led Zeppelin. That, that's what I want to do. Joan's tween years were soundtracked by Elvis and the Rolling Stones, but her biggest hero came to be Susie Quattro, the bass-slinging rocker from Detroit who played Leather Tescadero on Happy Days. The first time Joan saw Quattro growl into a mic, she thought, she can do it, I can definitely do it. So she begged her parents for a guitar, and begged and begged, until finally, a Sears Silvertone showed up under the Christmas tree. She was 13 years old. If you've seen the Runaways movie, you know guitar lessons didn't pan out. In the film, her instructor tries to teach her on top of Old Smokey, and when she protests, he says, Girls don't play electric guitars. Apparently, this is pretty close to the truth. As she later told Rolling Stone, it only made her want to play quote-unquote sweaty, crotch-grabbing rock and roll even more. So in lieu of lessons, she taught herself by ear. Like Carrie, Joan had been living through images of Rodney's in rock magazines. When her parents announced the family was moving to LA, 14-year-old Joan felt like fate was pushing her towards something. Upon arrival, she immediately threw herself into cultivating a rocker image cutting her hair like Quattro and donning a black leather jacket. She taught herself basic chords and what eight songs she'd hear. Not being able to afford many records, nights out were her chances to study. 
Soon, she taught herself a whole catalog of rock songs, and she was radiating a rock star cool. In some ways, it seems inevitable that Joan and Carrie would connect. They had similar crowds and similar ambitions. Almost immediately, they started spending every weekend together. Joan would beam with envy over Carrie's publishing deal with Fowley. One day, she even proposed starting a band. Carrie said, Uh, I only write lyrics. Talk to Kim. Joan may have had the rock star image down, but she was still a shy, awkward 16-year-old. When Carrie introduced her to Fowley, who, of course, every music-obsessed teen in L.A. knew about, Joan became so embarrassed, she hid behind a hamburger. Ever the master of Segway, Fowley just ignored this. Instead, he jumped straight into asking if she had a demo tape. She didn't even know what a demo tape was, so she went home, called him up, and played to him over the phone. Possibly a ukulele, possibly an electric guitar. Again, depends on who you ask. Whatever it was, it impressed Fowley enough to keep in touch. Not long after, Fowley met Sandy Pesavento, a sun-kissed surfer with long, sinewy arms. According to him, she was standing in a parking lot outside the Rainbow Bar Grill. It was late, and like most girls her age who couldn't get into clubs, she was waiting to find a party. He thought she looked like Dennis Wilson's younger sister, and she had a musician's fuck you cool about her. He had to talk to this surfer goddess. Except, according to Sandy's sister Lori, Sandy approached him. Sandy was a musician lost in a sea of groupies. While she played drums with boys in her suburban town of Huntington Beach, she was tired of hanging around women chasing bands. She wanted to be playing with other women in a band. After seeing Fowley's bomp ad, Sandy tried to sneak down to the Sunset Strip any chance she got, hoping to meet him. She'd been trying to cross Fowley's path for close to a year, and now the only thing she had to show for it was Joan Larkin's phone number. But she didn't toss it. She called Joan and scheduled a rehearsal. Joan took four buses across LA to meet her. The trip was worth it though. Their connection was vibrant and immediate. They were both excitable, athletic, and music obsessed. Joan was a little more glam and glitter, and Sandy was a little more stone or rock. But they both knew what it was like to be lone female musicians, and they both took their dreams seriously. In Sandy's second floor rec room, Joan plugged into a Marshall amp, her first time using anything approximating professional equipment. Before long, the pair worked out Elvis's All Shook Up, done the Susie Quattro way. High on synchronicity and youthful exuberance, they called up Fowley and played him what they had been working on. They caught him in the middle of lunch with music journalist Richie York. What do you think of this, Richie? Sounds pretty good. York had worked with people like John Lennon and written for places like Rolling Stone. His encouragement was a stamp of approval. A moment that made the band feel real, potentially profitable. No more four bus treks to Sandy's second floor rec room. From then on, Carrie, Joan, and Sandy were at Fowley's rundown bachelor pad every week, rehearsing songs, writing lyrics, and scouting new members. Fowley was committed to making it a band of teenage women and only teenage women. Each day the band was incomplete meant its members were one day closer to adulthood. So he put an ad in all the important magazines. Rolling Stone, Bump, Backdoor Man, Cream. 
He had everyone from Bingenheimer to Stooges guitarist Ron Ashton looking for potential members. If Fowley heard a teen girl played an instrument, or even wanted to play an instrument, he'd try them out. Women from places as far flung as Ohio showed up to audition. But if there wasn't one thing wrong with them, there was another. Too fat, too ugly, too disagreeable. And if he liked them, they often didn't like him. Between his standards and theirs, it was hard finding someone. Until Sue Thomas. Sue was a 20-year-old who worked at a record store in Orange County. She had apple cheeks and red hair that tumbled across her shoulders and down her back. Her singing voice was low, her bass playing precise. She drove her grandma's 1968 Thunderbird and dressed like the poor man Stevie Nicks. When Sandy picked her up and took her to the audition, she thought Sue seemed kind of quiet and strange. A perfectly nice girl, but not exactly a rocker. They made polite chit-chat, but she wasn't expecting much. At the audition, Fowley asked Sue to accompany Joan and Sandy on a melodic but complicated pop song called I'm Not In Love. Sue performed the song perfectly. She was definitely a rocker, and together, the girls sounded like more than a trio, they sounded like a group. Now that they were more of a group, they needed a name. In some versions of the Runaways' origin story, their name came from a French porno magazine. The truth is, Fowley found an old movie poster in a memorabilia shop. It showed silhouettes of girls running through a dramatic urban landscape. Below, there was something about teen runaways. Immediately, he had a vision of the band as a tribute to youths who didn't see a future worth running towards. Weren't most runaways teen women and queer boys anyway? So he took the idea to Carrie, Joan, Sandy, and Sue. They loved it. Fowley was ready to remake the girls in the image he felt they should project. So he reinvented them with new names. Sue Thomas became Mickey Steele, transforming her from quiet femme into androgynous metalhead. Sandy Pesavento became Sandy West to emphasize how West Coast she was. Fowley didn't rename Joan. She was the only member to name herself. Jet implied speed, cunning. The extra T added an air of irreverence and it matched her newly jet black hair. Now that they had their new rock and roll images, he started the girls on what Wes described as rock and roll boot camp, too. Though they were still looking for additional members, Fowley had the women on an aggressive rehearsal schedule. He wanted them to play tight but be ready for anything during a show. In his defense, he didn't have much experience with teens outside of clubs. But Fowley wasn't trying to be a mentor here either. He was trying to make money off these women. Perhaps recalling his brief stint in the National Guard, he drilled them like a drill sergeant. Here's how Sandy described it, typical Fowley rehearsal tirade in her diary. I guess staying up late every night and taking pills and smoking grass is more important than learning these fucking songs, right? I guess hanging out and listening to the Stooges and the Dolls is more important than getting this fucking song down, right? Maybe you dog cunts would rather go back to your boring old lives with mommy and daddy. Maybe you don't have what it takes to play this piece of dog shit. Fowley was always pulling out fun names for the girls like dog shit, dog puke, and dog piss. When they didn't play songs right, he'd say things like, You're as useless as fleas on a dog's ass. But none of the girls had been in professional bands before. For all they knew, this was just how it was. 
And even if it wasn't, what was the alternative? Missing their chance at stardom and maybe even history? This guy had made gold records. He'd worked with Alice Cooper. Sticks and stones may break their bones, but they weren't going to let Fowley's words hurt them. Or at least their chances at careers. That's not how Danielle Fay, bassist for the LA glam rock band Atomic Kid, felt about it. The Runaways weren't sure if they wanted a singer who also played, so they were still auditioning bass players. Even though Danielle was in a group, she tried out because she was excited by the idea of an all-girl band. It was new and different, and with second-wave feminism in full force, the time seemed right. She really liked the energy of the group, too. Mickey, Sandy, and Joan felt like old friends. But Fowley? Fowley was a different matter. Once Danielle realized Fowley's level of involvement, she decided the band wasn't much of a democracy. It was more of a Fowley project that he'd be exercising total control over. Danielle already had a good thing going, a band that was collaborative and gave her a lot of autonomy. She liked the Runaways concept enough to spend several days strongly considering joining, but in the end, Fowley was too much of a deal breaker. Fowley went back and told the band that Danielle was too caught up in her boyfriend for them. Danielle's sister Dee Dee had recommended her. She felt guilty for Danielle not working out. To make it up, she found another prospect, Lita Ford. Lita was a virtuoso of a guitarist out of Long Beach who'd made a name for herself playing heavy metal at house parties. Here's how Lita described her first phone call from the producer in her memoir. Is this the girl who plays bass? No, I'm not a bass player. Well, I have a proposition for you, young woman. It requires being able to play an instrument. Do you play an instrument? I play guitar. Well, we need one of those, too. The Runaways, an all-girl teenage band of rebellious jailbait rock and roll bitches. Who is this? Kim! My name is Kim Fowley. I'm a mastermind producer-songwriter, and I can make you into one of the biggest rock stars in the world. You will fuck the best rock stars, you will tour the biggest arenas, you will be on the cover of every magazine. You will become a legend. <laughs> By some accounts, Lita played a little bass at the audition. When Joan stepped out for a cigarette, her and Sandy got to bonding over their love of hard rock. Hollywood had spent the last few years steeped in glam, but both Lita and Sandy were from areas that are better described as metal. Lita picked up her guitar, and her and Sandy started cranking out Deep Purple songs. Sandy felt the same chemistry she had during that first rehearsal with Joan. There was no question. Lita had to be in the band. But Lita didn't feel as attached to the band. Exactly how long she lasted is a little unclear. In her memoir, Lita says she left a few weeks after Cherie Curry joined. Queens of Noise, the book most of this podcast is based on, has her leaving before the Runaways played their first show, which was with Mickey. This is the timeline I'm inclined to trust, but the specifics aren't important. What's important is why Lita left. Fowley definitely got on Lita's nerves, but something else drove her away. Lita, a first-generation European immigrant from a traditional Catholic family, had never been around gay people. And the Runaways? They were super queer. But you'll have to wait to learn more about that. 
Join me next week as we talk about the Runaways' first performances and early club days. You'll hear clips from the Runaways' demo tapes, and I'll reveal when Mickey Steele became Michael Steele, the bassist for a little band called The Bangles. This podcast is written and produced by Miko Caporel. That's me. Today, we had a lot of special guests that helped bring this history to life. In order of appearance, Kim Fowley was played by Scott Plant. Cherie and Marie Curry were played by Kat DeBacher. Carrie Crome was played by Haley Jane Blackstone. Fast Freddie Patterson was played by Josh Watkins. Joan Jett was played by Jonna Jackson. Richie York was played by J.R. Nelson. Sandy West was played by Eli Harvey. And Lita Ford was played by Kat Buckley. To learn more about today's episode, check out our website, badreputationpod.com. There you'll find information about our sources and bonuses like images, articles, and videos. You can find us on Instagram, too, at badreputationpod. If you like this show, share it with everyone you can. Seriously, tweet it to your friends, give a Facebook shout-out to the people from high school you never talked to, email it to your grandma. All of that really helps. You can also subscribe and rate us on iTunes. That really helps, too. Thanks so much for listening to Bad Reputation, and I will see you next week.